0: Well, freedom is defined as a state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. It speaks of being without hindrance or restraint. You know, as we've been going through this coronavirus quarantine, we've got a pretty good idea of what that meaning is. And I think we're all looking forward to that time when the restrictions are lifted and people can go out and do what they want, when they want, where they want, and how they want. But even after these restrictions are lifted, you know, we really just can't do anything we want. Because there are still rules. There are still societal uh, boundaries. There are still laws that are in place. Everyone understands that there are extremes. One of those is what we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with a very restrictive set of rules and regulations in order to keep people safe. It's, it's, it's things that are restricting our freedom. But the other extreme would be where there are absolutely no rules. And if you're thinking, well, that would be great. Let me let you think about that for a minute. What if there were absolutely no rules? You would actually have your freedoms restricted as well. You wouldn't be safe to go out on the street. You couldn't get in your car and drive through an intersection because there would be no traffic lights. There would be no rules that said somebody just couldn't blow through and run into you. You wouldn't be safe to walk the streets because there would be no laws that said uh, people just couldn't walk up to you and take your property or even your life. So as we think in terms about freedom... There are extremes on either end that God says, as we're going to see today in Galatians chapter 5, that he doesn't want us living on either end. As we turn in our Bible today to Galatians 5, what we're going to see is where Paul talks about the freedom we have, the freedom we have in Christ. And and what he warns us about today is the danger of living on either extreme end of the scale. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin by reading Galatians 5 uh, chapter five, verses one through 15. Paul writes for us. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting, are, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little lump leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now, what we find here in verse 1 is a summary of the last two chapters of Galatians. Really, it encompasses everything that Paul has written for us throughout the whole book. And when we read here that that we have freedom in Christ, the way it was originally written in the Greek text is actually a much stronger statement. Uh, it, It is more emphatic because what Paul literally says here is, for freedom, Christ freed us. For freedom... Christ freed us. Both the noun and the verb are the word freedom. And the verb is in the aorist tense, which means it is a completed action. It is completely done. And and so what's being said here in the most direct and definitive way is that as Christians, Jesus has set us free. Jesus has set us free. Now, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that we've been set free? Well, it means two things. What we're being told here is what we're freed from and what we're freed to. What we're freed from and what we're being freed to. You see, what we're freed from is God's wrath, And condemnation that we deserved as sinners. The Bible says there is a penalty of death for our sins, and we deserve that. But Christ came, He died on the cross, He paid the penalty of death for us. He removed the wrath of God, He propitiated our sins, which means He not only paid the legal requirement, but He removed the wrath. So we're saved from the wrath and the condemnation, but what we're freed for is to live a life of righteousness, a life of hope. Now, while this is a past-completed action, remember it's in the aorist tense of the verb. What what Paul is telling us is we as Christians can lose what God has given us. Now, I want you to understand this very clearly. We cannot lose our salvation. The Bible is very clear that once we are saved, we are always saved. We're going to see a little bit further in verse 4 where Paul articulates in greater detail what it is that we lose. But what we lose, we cannot lose uh, our salvation, but we can lose the freedom that we have that comes through the gospel. Because in Galatians 5.16, what we're told here that we're going to be looking at next week, actually, is that what we lose is the power of the Holy Spirit, because there he tells us to walk in the Spirit. We as Christians have been sealed and indwelled by the, the Holy Spirit. But the Bible warns us, it tells us, do not, be, do not quench the Holy Spirit's work in us. We can lose the power that God gives to us. And what we can also lose is the peace, the peace that God gives to us. That piece of knowing that we are saved, that piece of understanding that we are firmly in his nail-scarred hand, as John ten twenty eight and 29 tells us, that we are in the family of God and that we will be with him for all eternity. And what the Galatians were, were being told, they were being told by the Judaizers is you're probably not fully saved. You have not yet been circumcised. You've not been following the law. And so they went back into this fear of the unknown, this fear of am I in or out? What do I need to do to earn God's favor, his approval, and things? And so this is what Paul is warning us that we can lose. These Judaizers... Uh, who were the Jewish legalists? Who were telling the the Gentile Christians, "You have to come under the Mosaic Law. You have to fulfill all the rules and rituals that come through the Law." Uh, they were they were being brought into slavery. I want to show you a series of slides here, because this outlines for us what is happening in the book. You see, what the Jewish legalists were saying is, grace is dangerous. The reason they said grace is dangerous is because they said it can lead to license, licentiousness. This is a word that talks about how we live a life of sin. And and you see there that he says in Galatians 5.13 in the second part, it is an opportunity for the flesh. And so what the, the fear was among these Jewish legalists is that if you preach a gospel of grace, people are going to go off the rails and they're going to do anything and everything they want. Which is why they went to the other extreme of legalism. And we see there in Galatians 5.1 where he says, Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is Paul's warning. What, what was happening is they had gone from freedom to back under these rules and restrictions. And what, what neither of these is where God wants us living. What he wants us living is in liberty what you see there in Galatians 5.1 and again in Galatians 5.13 where he says, you were called to freedom. Remember the the literal translation of what Paul wrote is for freedom Christ freed us. For freedom Christ freed us. We are freed from God's wrath and condemnation and we are free to live in righteousness and hope. There's a a great picture of of what this is in John chapter 8. If you read John chapter 8, there we have the account where the religious leaders, the legalists, the Pharisees of the day take this woman and Jesus is somewhere teaching and they show up and they they throw this woman in the dirt in front of him. And if you've read the passage, you remember what what is happening is they, they say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, the law of God says that the punishment for this sin is that this woman should be killed. She should be stoned to death. And so they've set a trap for Jesus. They really don't care about the holiness of God. They really don't care even about the law of God. If, if If they were really all that, then where's the guy? I mean, remember it says we caught her in the very act. So where's the guy? And so you have this scared woman thrown down in the dirt in front of Jesus. The crowd is forming. People are standing there with rocks. The religious leaders, these legalists, have all brought their rocks to stone this woman to death. And they're like, we've got Jesus in a catch-22. If he says, uh, stone her, well, then, you know, he's a legalist. And he, he has no mercy and grace. But if he says, let her go, well, then he cares nothing about the law of God. And so they're like, we've, we've got him. And what Jesus does is he, he kneels down in the dirt. I think one reason he does that is he's eye to eye with this scared, shaking woman. He looks her in the eye. He cares for her in the midst of this this horrendous situation she finds herself in. And Jesus says to the crowd, uh, whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he begins writing in the dirt. Now, we're not told what he writes in the dirt. Wouldn't you like to know? I imagine that what Jesus is writing in the dirt is the sins of the people in the crowd, right? He's reminding everybody of, oh, yeah, what about you and you? Again, that's not in the scripture. That's, that's just my, uh, my thoughts on the passage. And as Jesus is writing in the dirt, one by one, the rocks are being dropped in the dirt. And the crowd is melting away. And ultimately, even these self-righteous religious leaders, they disappear, and there's no one left but the scared woman in the dirt and Jesus kneeling by her side. And as, as we're reading the passage in John eight ten, Jesus says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. You know, as you read that passage, what Jesus does is we see again what he freed her from and what he freed her for. He freed her from condemnation. He freed her from the penalty of death, the physical death she was about to experience and the ultimate spiritual death of separation from God. But what he doesn't say to her is free her for a life of licentiousness. He doesn't say, woman, look, YOLO, right? We only live, you only live once. So go out there and do whatever you want. Hey, you were just caught in adultery. If, you, if that's something you want to do again, go ahead. Don't worry about the legalists. Don't worry about the law of God. You know, make your own truth. Come up with whatever pleases you. Do whatever it is that you like. It's not at all what Jesus said. What he says is go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He frees her to a life of righteousness and hope. He frees her to live uh, in, in, under God's protection of law. You know, Jesus tells us in the scriptures, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say keep my commandments to be loved by me. John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and what Jesus tells this woman is if you want life, it doesn't come through a life of licentiousness, unbridled freedom, doing whatever it is that you want. You know, the world tells us that freedom comes by doing whatever you want. Friends, how many of you have tried and failed at the world system that says do whatever you want, no limits, no restrictions? It's a lie. You can look at your own life and know that. Think about the times where you've tried to live your life uh, free from any restriction. Right now, while we're under the quarantine, right, many people are stuck at home and, and, and there's all these jokes about how, you know, we're, we're gaining a lot of weight. I don't know that it's a joke. It's happening, you know, in, in my home as well with me, right? And so we're sitting here and we're going, uh, okay, no restrictions, I can eat anything I want whenever I want. I can eat junk food. I can eat sweets. I can not exercise. I can just, you know, be a couch potato. And that's the world saying, hey, there's no limits. But there are consequences that come with our actions. Weight gain, health issues, all these things that are coming when we live without limits. Uh, The world tells us you should be able to get what you want when you want. It doesn't matter that you haven't saved money. If you want something, just go get it. Get a credit card. Raise your limit. Take out a loan. No problem. You can have whatever you want today. And then the bill shows up. And we don't have money to pay it. And the interest accrues. And the mountain of debt begins to to get bigger and bigger. And ultimately, it can crush people. Now, as I know, many are out of work right now because of the economy and the the furloughing and the various things. And, And you've heard us say this week after week, and I want you to hear it again today. If you're out of work, if you're in need, please contact us here at Wayside Chapel call the church office, let us know. We have a food pantry available to you. We have an agape fund to come alongside and help meet the needs of families that have bills that are accruing when they're out of work. Uh, We will put you with one of our financial counselors. We'll talk through what your needs are, what the resources are, and ways we can come alongside to help you get through this time. You're not alone. But if you're trying to live according to the world's way that says just ignore all that stuff, no limits, no limits, you see, it's a lie. There are consequences that come. What about sex? The world says, who, who is God to tell you not to go out and have sex? Who's God to tell you that you should only have sex within a marriage relationship, one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship? Well, first of all, he's God, right? He, he's the one who invented sex. He's the one who gave it to us as a gift. God isn't some cosmic prude who is out there saying, look, you you know, here's something good that I don't want you to have. What God is saying is, I want the best for you. I want to protect you. I want to keep you from the pain and the hurt and the things that come when you live in this lifestyle of licentiousness with no limits, no rules. He says, as you're out there being, being like that, you know, this tender type of dating where you just go from one conquest to the next. He says there are sexually transmitted diseases. There's unplanned pregnancies. There's the pain of being used and tossed aside when somebody finds, you know, a better looking picture to swipe and, and meet with the next person. And so, so what God is doing is actually protecting us. It's not that he's keeping good from us. He's saying, I have the best for you a loving monogamous relationship designed to be one man, one woman for life together in the security and the love and all that comes through that. The same thing applies to drinking, to doing drugs. The world says, hey, go out and have this unbridled consumption. You'll, you'll enjoy yourself. You'll have freedom. And what you find is you become a slave and you're under bondage to addiction. Not only is your body destroyed, your financial resources, you know, squandered, but you ultimately become a slave and addicted to these things that promised you freedom. Verse five, I mean, Galatians five one tells us, therefore, keep standing firm and not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You see, Jesus Christ didn't set us free for us to ultimately just turn around and become a slave again to sin. Christ set us free for freedom. I've seen countless situations where living in sin does not bring you freedom. Before I was a pastor, I was a policeman. And I was called out on the streets of Dallas to all kinds of situations, into homes, into businesses, into back alleys, into, you know, places that you don't want to go. And I would see the wreckage of the supposed freedom of the world as people were there in in back alleys, naked and, and in the dirt and dealing with all kinds of horrible things or the stuff that would happen to those who were workers in the sex trade and the other things. Friends, the world tells you there's freedom out there, and it is a lie. And I see it today as a pastor, as I come alongside families, who have again tried to live according to the world's ways, and they find themselves, uh, the world says, go out there and, and, and take, this freedom is there for the taking, and what it does is it takes a toll on the individual and the families and those who love them. Because again, there becomes this bondage and addiction and destruction to the individual and the family. God is not approved prude saying, you know, I, I, I don't want you enjoying life, What he's saying is, I want you to enjoy life to the fullest. Jesus Christ tells us, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. There is freedom in the liberty that Jesus Christ gives to us as believers, as we walk with him, as we live according to the the calling that he's given to us. Now, clearly, there's destruction with licentiousness. On that extreme, but friends, there is also destruction of living under legalism, because Paul describes it here as a yoke of slavery. A yoke of slavery. A, a yoke was was used by a farmer to put animals together. They would put this yoke on their neck and they would hitch them to a wagon or a plow, and and the animal was no longer roaming free in a field, but suddenly it was bound. And it was hitched to a burden. It would pull a wagon. It would pull a plow. And so this picture that Paul gives us of this yoke of slavery is is one that people would have understood as they were an agrarian society. It's something you can picture here of you being yoked to a wagon. And the Jewish legalists are piling the wagon full of the rules and rituals. There are not just the Ten Commandments. The Bible has 613 commandments in it. And so you picture this wagon piled high with all of this, and you're under this burden as you're trying to pull this load and and, and do all that the legalists were telling the Galatian believers, you have to follow the Mosaic law. You have to do these things. In Acts chapter 15, there's a, a similar discussion and warning about this yoke that the law is, there the apostle Peter was dealing with some Jewish religious leaders who had come to faith in Christ. These are people just like Paul, who had been a Pharisee, a religious leader, who have come to faith. Now, this group that Peter's dealing with in Acts 15, uh, even though they're believers, they're trying to keep the the Mosaic law as a requirement for for others. And the discussion goes like this. In Acts 15.5, it says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying uh, it is necessary to circumcise them and, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And Peter goes on and says to them, no. As you read Acts 15.9-11, through 11, uh, Peter says, God made no distinction between, between them and us the Gentiles and us as Jews, uh, and cleansing their hearts by faith. He says, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the, the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He says, but we believe and are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. Peter Is saying what Paul says, because the Holy Spirit is directing all of the apostles. All of the things we find in the scripture are written through the pens of men, but directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And God says, that's not how I want you living. You're not saved by the law. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace. We find that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. God offers us this great gift of, of life. And yet as you look here in Galatians, the, the Judaizers were saying, no, you can't live under grace. You're not saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. You're saved through uh, adding in circumcision, adding in the law, doing all these things. I want to remind you that as we're going through Galatians, Paul has already been talking a lot. Remember I told you this, this passage is a summary of, of the previous rest of what he said in the book. And if you go back and, and look at Galatians 1.6, what he, what he tells us in Galatians 1.6, he said to the believers, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel that, that word different that we see there in our scriptures is the Greek word heteros. It's, it's a word that means literally another of a different kind. Uh, we use this word in, in our everyday language. We talk about heterosexual relationships. Another of a different kind. A heterosexual relationship is a man physically, uh, a male, and a woman, man as a woman, mankind. So you have a man and a woman who are both humans, but they are another of a different kind. And what Paul says is you have the Judaizers coming along and saying, well, there's the gospel of grace, but we have another gospel that's grace plus law, right? It's another of a different kind. But if you were with us when we looked at Galatians 1.6, you'll remember in Galatians 1.7, Paul went on to say, listen. It's not, a, it's not two of the same kind. What he literally said is, it is really not another. It's really not another. You're not dealing with humans where there's a man and a woman, both of the same species, just different in gender. He says, this isn't one gospel of grace and one gospel of grace plus something else. He says, literally, it is not a gospel. It's not a gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. It speaks of how we're saved, how we get home to be with God in heaven. And God himself has told us there is just one way home to heaven. Jesus Christ said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, comes to the father but through me there is only one way home to heaven it is through the death of jesus christ as he died on the cross paid the penalty in full for our sins rose from the dead three days later showing he was god who had conquered sin death and satan and for anyone who receives that gift of grace it is a payment credited to our account as we saw again earlier in galatians where paul unpacked what this means what Paul says to the, the Galatians is there, there are those who are coming up with this different gospel that's really not a gospel. Again, if you go back and look at Galatians 1.6, there he says that they are distorting the gospel of Christ. This word distort literally means to pervert, to twist, to distort it and make it something it's not. That, that same word that is used there is used in other places in the Bible. Uh, We find it in Acts 2.20, where it says the sun which shines is turned to darkness. He he says in James 4.9 that laughter is turned to mourning. These are two polar opposites. The sun is bright or it's dark. There's laughter or there's mourning. What he's saying is it is something that is the complete opposite of what it was. And when he says you take the gospel of grace and you add anything works to it, whether it's baptism in our day, speaking in tongues, circumcision like the Judaizers were doing, he says, "What you have done is made the gospel something it's not. You've turned it into something that it isn't." This is why uh, Paul says to the Judaizers in, in Galatians five eleven, he wishes they would just emasculate themselves. That's a very graphic picture that Paul gives. But what he says is if you go in and you go to circumcise a baby boy and you don't just snip off the little bit of the foreskin but you cut cut it completely off you've emasculated it you've now made it something it wasn't and this is what he says they've done to the gospel you see, the, the Judaizers were saying, look, what's the big deal? It's just a tiny little snip. There will just be a little drop of blood or two from, from the you know, quick surgery that happens there. And then everything will be fine. And what Paul says is you've completely done away with the cross of Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus was shed to be the atonement, the payment for our sins. The blood alone is what washes away our sins. And now they were saying, well, you know, the blood of Jesus wasn't enough. You now have to add a little bit of blood of your own to it. You now have to have a little sweat equity into the the gospel, into you being saved. And this is why Paul has already warned us earlier in Galatians when he said in 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul says, why did Jesus even have to die on the cross? Why was he crucified? Why did he become the payment for our sins if we are going to be paying for our sins as well through what we do through our works? And this is why Paul was so vehement about defending the gospel. What he was saying is you are taking something that was the gospel of grace and you're nullifying it. You're completely doing away with it. Because if you add even one tiny thing, what you've completely done is remove Christ from the equation. And then Paul says, then you're lost. You've stepped away from grace. You're going under the law, and so Paul says, if you want to be under the law, then you have to fulfill the law in total. As, as you read through the scriptures, uh, James two ten tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet it says stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. God doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't say, well, there's 613 commandments and you did 400 of them, or you did 500, or this one even did 612, but he just missed one. So, you know, you're, you're pretty good. You get in. God's standard is perfection. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned. That word means to miss the mark, to be disobedient, to fail to fulfill the law of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is perfection. There is not a single man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived other than the God-man Jesus Christ who did not sin. Jesus Christ, as being fully God and fully man, was the only one who walked the face of this earth and never committed a sin. Every one of us has, which is why every one of us is under the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the good news is, it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And what Paul says is there is grace available to you. If you receive the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. But if you go off and you start to add works to the gospel of grace, you've nullified it, you've done away with it. And so now you get to live under the law instead of under grace. And this is that other end of the scale of legalism where they are under this yoke of slavery. Now, I want you to look at what Paul says there because there's a word you probably just kind of skipped over because what what Paul tells us is, he says, I don't want you living under this, this thing. He says, we're going to see the word again there. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me finish. Uh, let me get back to my notes here and, and tell you what else Paul said before I get further into that. Because I told you earlier, we can't lose our salvation, but we do lose our peace and the power that comes. And I told you that Paul points that out in verse 4, so I want you to see that. Because what he says there is, you have been severed from Christ. Or as some translations say, you've fallen away. The Greek word that is used there literally means to render inoperative. To render inoperative. So what that word means is that you have gone from the sphere of faith where you're living in grace and you're being guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit to doing away with that and instead living under law, the burden, the yoke, the things that you are trying to do. And this is where Paul then warns them as he came out in Galatians 5.1 and he says, Do not be subject again. To the yoke of slavery. Now, what does it mean again? Because what Paul is doing is saying to these Galatians, remember, they're Christians. They've come to faith, they're believers. And so, what he says is, when he says what you've done by going under the law is you've stepped away from grace, he's not saying you've lost your salvation. They're still saved. But what he says is, what you have done is gone back to your pre Christian days. Remember, the Galatians were predominantly Gentiles. They lived under the world system of paganism. They worshiped these false gods. They made sacrifices and offerings and things to try to appease the wrath of these unseen uh, false gods. And so what they were doing was living a life of burden and sacrifice and things, trying to, to earn the favor of these false gods. And what he says is when you came to faith in Christ, you came to know the one true living God. He says, but what you're doing now is going back under the old system. Not following the false gods, but what you are doing is trying to appease the one true living God. And Paul says, why would you live like that? Think about the day where the restrictions are lifted here and people say you can go out without wearing a mask. You can go into grocery stores and not worry is there going to be, you know, toilet paper or butter or eggs or milk or some other, you know, hand sanitizer. Things you, you know, you you feel like you've scored, you know, a great victory when you buy one of these things. How many of us want to go back once the restrictions are lifted to living like we are now? We don't. And what Paul says to them is, that's what you're doing, brothers, sisters. You've been set free. But now you're going back to this system of fear and trembling, fear of a God that you have to appease his wrath. Uh, this, This God offering things, wondering, am I in or out? And Paul says, why are you going again to this yoke of slavery? God doesn't want you living like that. What, what he does want us living like is found in verse 5. He says, we await the righteousness for which we hope. Now, when you hear that word hope, the problem is some people misunderstand the word. They, they think of it as this weak, wishful thinking kind of word, right? Like you talk to your, your family members and you say, well, I, I hope it's going to be a pretty day tomorrow. And we're wishing that the weather would be nice. And, and, and it's, it's just kind of this, you know, hopeful, wishful, mm, it may or may not be, it's no big deal. But the word hope in the biblical definition is a very strong word. It's, it's a word that is, speaks of assurance and certainty. We find that word in Hebrews 11, one, where faith is defined for us. Faith says, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not a, we hope this is going to actually be true when we die. It's the assurance. It's the conviction of what we haven't seen. That's what faith is. Believing and trusting in the unseen, not a blind faith one that is based upon evidence from the resurrection of Christ to all the ways we see God at work in our, in our life, in our world. And so we have this, this firm assurance. And, and what Paul is saying is we need to live in that assurance we, he, he says because of the cross of Christ, we, we don't have to worry, we don't have to strive for our redemption. Jesus did it all at the cross, and we are just waiting for that day where we experience the fulfillment of the promises of God. Promises that are 100% assured and guaranteed because God gave them. And God showed them that just as He brought His Son back from the dead, as Jesus rose from the grave, He says, "You can take it to the bank." That every single one of us will one day rise from the dead, that we will be with the Lord in heaven again when we die. Earlier in Galatians three, we saw where Christ, we saw where what Christ did in dying on the cross was credited to our account. Remember, we talked about the imputed righteousness when we were in chapter 3. We talked about how the payment that Jesus made was, was applied to our account. It's why Jesus said, paid in full in John 19.30, to day." Literally, paid in full. The penalty of death was paid for. The blood of Christ purchased it. Not the shedding of our blood through circumcision. Not the, the works that we do in the hope of appeasing a wrathful, angry God. We have been freed from the wrath of God. And we have been freed to live in freedom in Christ, and and this is the assurance that we have. And where we're told here, we can await eagerly rather than being anxious. Isn't that a wonderful word for us today, where many are awaiting. When will the band be lifted? When will things return to normal? When will I no longer have to feel anxious and fearful? And what God says is, you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. He says, I've already taken care of what's going to happen for all eternity for you. You can rest in that. You can have the assurance in that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is on the throne. None of this is out of the control of our God. And God is using these hard things and ways to to refine and purify and bring many to know His Son. We have been hearing reports over and over of people out there online who never attended our church who are watching and listening, people who are coming to faith in Christ through the messages you're you're watching right now online that never had walked through the doors of Wayside Chapel, and that's not just happening in our church; that's happening worldwide with Christians all over. We're we're seeing that there are people from uh, over 10 different countries that are watching the messages that are going out from Wayside Chapel, and you multiply that through all the other Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches. God is at work. God is harvesting a number of people through these terrible times, these trials and things. And so God is at work. And God has promised that he has already brought about the ultimate redemption for us as believers. Now, as we wait for that day where we receive our redemption, where we get to heaven, where we have our rewards, God says, right now, while we can look ahead, he says, I want you to think about how you're living your life right now, because we're called to run a race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We're running a race called life. And Paul says to the Galatian believers in verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from following the truth? Now, Paul already knows the answer to that because, again, if you go back to the original Greek text and you look at how that verse is literally translated, Paul answers the question that he just asked that we see in our English translation. When he says in Galatians 5, 7, who you were running well, what it literally says is, who cut in on you? Who cut in on you so that you stopped obeying the truth? If you've ever been a runner, you, you know exactly the picture that Paul is painting for us here. Because the picture Paul gives is when you're a runner, you're assigned to a lane. And you have to stay in your lane. Now, there, there comes a point where the lanes all merge as you're going around turns in a, in a longer race. But if another runner cuts in on your lane, they're not only disqualified themselves, but they can, they can create a disaster for you. See, a great example of that from the 1984 Olympics. In 1984, there was a, a U.S. runner, uh, Mary Decker, who was the hands-down hands favorite to win the 3,000-meter race. She was, she was, Mary Decker was going to be the gold medalist, everybody said, before the race even began. And Mary was running her race. She was in her lane. And then as the pack was starting to come together, there was a, a British runner, who cut in on her. This, this British runner was named Zola Budd. And, and Zola Budd cut her off. And she clipped. There's, there's questions about did she bump, did she this or that. But she caused Mary Decker to fall. And Mary Decker went down and she didn't finish the race. She hurt her hip. She was out of the race. And somebody who wasn't even seated to win gold walked away with the gold medal. This is the picture here. Paul says, you were in the lane of grace, Galatians. You were running well. You understood who Jesus was, what he did for you. And suddenly these Judaizers have cut in on you. They've pushed you out of the lane of grace. They've got you now over here running in the lane of legalism. And what it is is a dead end place that will take you into destruction. And he says, why? Why are you doing that? He says, get back. Get back under grace. Get back in the lane that God has given to you. Paul goes on and he gives a second illustration here. He goes from a a picture of of athletics to cooking. And what he says is a little leaven. He says a little leaven will uh, take and make the whole lump of dough impure. Leaven was used in the scriptures as a picture of sin and evil. And if you take just a tiny pinch of yeast and you put it into the dough, it will begin to permeate the entire lump and the entire thing becomes infected. And Paul says, this is what the Judaizers have done. They came with you with just a tiny pinch. They said, just a little snip, just add circumcision. And he says, but with it then comes the entirety of the law. It's going to permeate. It's going to infect. It's going to change everything. And this is what was happening uh, with what the Judaizers were teaching. And Paul says as he's confronting the Galatians, as he's encouraging them to come back to the truth, he says in verse 10, but I have confidence that you will. I know that you will come to see the truth. I know that you're going to come back and you're going to run with Christ. You're going to walk as you should. And as we're talking about the untruths that the, the Judaizers, these legalists were teaching, Paul says in verse 11, another untruth they were saying is that Paul was one who was also preaching circumcision. Paul, when he was a Pharisee, did. He said, hey, you've got to follow the law. Then he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He came to understand grace, and he said, no longer are we under law, but we're under grace now in, in an earlier sermon in this series, we talked about how in Acts sixteen three, Paul took Timothy and he circumcised him. And we don't have time to go back through the totality of, of why he did that, but the summary is this. You'll remember Timothy was a Jew by birth. Timothy had been raised knowing the law, and Paul wanted to use him to reach the Jews. And Paul said, There's a stumbling block as a Jew by birth, a Jew by training and, and upbringing. You have not been circumcised, and this will be a stumbling block to the Jewish audience. So he circumcised Timothy. He didn't circumcise Titus. And he does, he's not telling the Galatians to be circumcised. So what Paul says here is, I'm not in their camp. And he says, The evidence of that is if I were really in their camp, then why would they be persecuting me? We'd be on the same side. He said, But we're not. So he dispels that on truth here. And then he wraps up this section of scripture in verses 13 through 15. And what he says there is, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity to, for the flesh, but through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest that you be consumed by one another. What Paul does is he says the message of of verses 1 through 12 was don't lose the gospel of freedom. And then as he comes to verses 13 through 15, he says don't abuse the gospel of freedom. Don't lose it, but also don't abuse it. Because Paul knows that when he speaks of being free from the law, there are some who are going to say, okay, liberty is a license. Kind of like the old 007 movies, right? I've got James Bond, a license to kill. I can go do what I want. And Paul says, those of you who think that this is a license to sin have missed missed everything that's been said. And so what Paul says is, this is not an opportunity to sin, to serve the flesh. Rather, it is an opportunity to serve others, to demonstrate love to others. And he says in verse 15, is that that if we fail to to love and serve others, it will lead to destruction, not only for them, but for ourselves. He gives a picture of Christian cannibals, right? He says, we're going to bite, we're going to devour, we're going to consume one another. Rather than destroying others, God wants us to demonstrate love to others. The Judaizers were trying to destroy Paul. They were trying to destroy the Galatians. And Paul says, God doesn't want us to live like that. Paul says, God wants us to understand his love for us and then to live in love for others. So as we close today, here's a point of application that I want you to think about. You can go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verses uh, 4 through 8, we find the great love passage. It defines what love is, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It goes through. You'll notice that it's not an adjective describing an emotion, a feeling. Every one of those is a verb. It is action. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It goes through and it defines for us what love is. And so I would like you to read that passage sometime this afternoon or this week. And as you do, take out a piece of paper and list out each of the characteristics. Literally write, love is patient. And then I want you to think about somebody you can demonstrate God's love to in a tangible, practical way. A great audience to begin with is those you're listening to this message with right now. Family members, roommates, friends that maybe you've invited to watch online with you. And as much as you have loved those people and, and being around them, the truth of the matter is, as this quarantine has gone on, maybe you've started to dance on each other's last nerves, right? Right? You're not as patient with them. Uh, you're, you're, you know, all their jokes are, have, you know, run out. You've worn thin with all the things. And so write down on a piece of paper, love is patient. And then write how you're going to demonstrate patience to the person. Because if you say, I don't feel like I love you right now, it's not a feeling, it's an action. So demonstrate a loving action to them. You can write, I'm going to be patient to my brother. I'm going to be patient to my sister. I'm going to be patient to my spouse. Do the thing with kindness. How are you going to be kind to somebody? Maybe there's a neighbor who's been blowing their leaves into your yard and it's just been making you angry. And you think, okay, I'm going to go out there. And I'm just going to bag up the leaves. I'm going to put them in my recycling bin. I'm going to pile them up by my house. And it may take two or three weeks before they're all taken away. But I'm going to, I'm going to be kind Uh, to the person, that person who's made you mad. It says, love does not take account of a wrong suffered. It's literally an accounting term. And rather than keeping track and saying, you owe me, you owe me, uh, say, God, with your help, will you help me to forgive that person? Will you help me find a way to release uh, this person? This is what God calls us to he says that we are as recipients of grace to be those who demonstrate grace to others. So this week, think of a, a neighbor, a coworker, a student from school that you've seen on your online classrooms, a family member that you can demonstrate this love to. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, I thank you for your great love and grace for us. I thank you for the freedom. That you give to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, in this time where we are reminded just of how precious freedom is, may we remember first not to take for granted what you've given to us, and second, Lord, to walk in that freedom and forgiveness that you give to us through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray if there's anyone listening who has not yet received Jesus, that today would be the day where they accept your gift of grace that they would stop striving, stop trying to work their way to heaven, that they would understand that it is a gift given by you to be received by them. For by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And you tell us in Romans 10, 9 how we can receive that gift, telling us if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And so I pray, God, if there's anyone who's not yet taken that step, that today... They would thank you. They would receive you. They would accept that gift of grace. Lord, help us to live in love as we demonstrate that to our friends and neighbors. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Wayside Chapel, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you again online next Sunday.